Tonight's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, look up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a snare, for it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth, But watch at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Good evening. I had the opportunity to hang out a bit with Debbie at, in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, at, at Princeton Theological Seminary, where Debbie and I both, uh, well, I led a workshop, and you were a featured speaker for the first Carl uh, Bart conference for pastors. And I had the opportunity to, to introduce Debbie, and her name is a lot easier to pronounce than mine, so I forgive you for that. The title of my sermon is Stand Up and Raise Your Heads. Our scriptural reading for today on this first Sunday of Advent is what we might call apocalyptic. In this text, Luke as Jesus speaking in apocalyptic terms of the future of his imminent return and the signs that indicate that the kingdom of God is near. Redemption, liberation, is near. It is at hand. Although one may not know the day or the hour, Jesus implores his audience to stand up and raise your heads, to be on guard, to remain alert, vigilant. For you will see, indeed, all who live on the face of the whole earth will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The apocalyptic tone of these texts 
is all too contemporary for us today. The images sound much too realistic to our ears. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations. Confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves, people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Biblical scholars tell us that Luke was drawing on apocalyptic imagery to speak about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But I, for one, find it hard not to read his words as an all-too-realistic description of what we see in our sky and on our earth today. As we witness a land that convulses in response to fracking and drilling, as we witness a sky that has become a toxic brew of methane and carbon dioxide, and as we witness the sea level rising and swallowing coastal villages and cities, apocalyptic does not seem out of date. The fear and foreboding is indeed a global phenomenon. And it is not only ecological. In light of the recent terrorist attacks on Paris, once again we hear the sounds of wars and rumors of war. Security and defense are ramping up. France, we are told, has witnessed a dramatic increase in military enlistment in the last few weeks. And in our own streets, many have witnessed for too long terror at the hands of the police. Are the powers of the heavens being shaken today? On Saturday evening, November 14th, a young black man named Jamar Clark was handcuffed by Minneapolis police for an alleged assault. And then, according to numerous eyewitnesses of the event, he was kneed in the back and shot in the head, execution style. Jamar died two days later. On the night of his death, I joined hundreds of others outside the 4th Precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department to demand justice for Jamar. On that night, I stood outside the gates of the police department and witnessed friends of Jamar express their outrage over the events. They were screaming, and they were weeping. They cursed the police. They stood there, shaking the 25-foot-high barbed wire gate. It was dark and rainy. And behind that gate was a parking lot full of police cars. And behind the police cars stood two dozen policemen staring us down with floodlights and guns. The screams of these young men and women were the sounds of a community that has been assaulted and terrorized by an anti-black police force for decades. On the other side of the fence were the sounds of police belching and laughing, smiling and taunting. The screams of this community are the sounds of a creation that groans, 
under the death-dealing weight of anti-God demonic powers. The belching and the laughter of the police are the sounds of the demonic powers still on the loose and wreaking havoc in and on our world. History does not remain in the past, no matter how much we might like it to. Critical race theorists have long maintained that racism is an immensely complex phenomenon that cannot be reduced to a problem of mere individual morality, a problem, say, of individual bias or prejudice. Anti-black racism in this country simply cannot be understood, much less confronted, apart from being confronted by and reckoning with the history of chattel slavery, of Jim Crow segregation, and the ongoing reality of the anti-black racism that is fundamental to even our most basic political, social, economic, and legal institutions. Furthermore, the reality and power of whiteness, which underlies and sustains this history and these institutions, is funded and sustained by a theological imagination, an imagination of the human as white. The human as white is preserved and protected through vast networks of coercive and possessive power, through policing and neighborhood watch groups, through constant and persistent surveillance of black communities, through the Department of Homeland Security, through border patrols and anti-immigration laws, through the disciplinary mechanisms of public education and mass incarceration. And all of this, I want to suggest today, is most fundamentally a problem of power, of power and its operation, of a persistent force, a persistent materiality of the will of white society. And this power, I think, is rightly named as demonic. Whiteness is, we might say, a form of demonic possession, just to the extent that whiteness is constitutively anti-black. Notice now that the same reporters, pundits, and politicians who were so eager to rally around the cause of the U.S. war on terror and the Israeli destruction of Gaza now seem to be unwaveringly committed to absolute nonviolence and peace. We hear it on TV. We see it on social media. Oh, the fear in their eyes. No riots, peace, and nonviolence law and order, protection of property on the north side. These are the mantras spoken over and over again by those with an interest in the preservation of white society, those who would do just about anything, it would seem, to maintain the so-called order of nature, to ensure that the black man and the black woman and the black children of Ferguson and Chicago and Minneapolis and St. Paul do not, as James Baldwin so aptly put it, move out of place. For the black person to move out of place 
in a social order that emerged and is sustained by colonialist genocide and white supremacy is indeed to risk the shaking of the very foundations of heaven and earth, a cataclysmic disruption of the order of nature. The coming of the Son of Man denotes the very activity and presence of a God who comes from beyond the world in great power and glory. But take note who this God is. This is the God of the crucified Nazarene. A God whose very activity and presence on the scene of human events is disruptive and disturbing, perhaps even out of the order of nature. To expect an apocalypse is to expect an event that undoes our ordinary understanding of things. And oftentimes we don't quite like what we see. The apocalyptic son of man who will come on the clouds from heaven in great power and glory will come soon. The one who will upend the world is none other than the one who is crucified by the structures of political and religious power produced and reproduced by a world gone mad, a world possessed by anti-God powers. And it is this one who is betrayed and abandoned, not just by his sworn enemies, but by his closest friends. It is the crucified Nazarene, the one crushed by the powers of sin and death, betrayed and abandoned, who is the one who tears open the heavens, the one who darkens the sun and the moon. It is this one whose words will not pass away and whose faithfulness is eternally enduring despite our continual rejection of him. It is the urgency of apocalyptic discourse, an urgency expressed in the radical hope and expectation that this crucified one will come soon. It's not yet here. He's not yet here. But there is an urgency that stares directly into the face of the inferno where there is no discernible hope in this world and without flinching boldly speaks, enough, you have no power. Indeed, the Spirit intercedes apocalyptically in the freedom and the power of those who scream in the face of burping police with guns behind barbed wire. To expectantly await the apocalypse of this faithful one, this one who is faithful to the world despite our world's continual betrayal and abandonment of him, is perhaps an impossibility, humanly speaking. And perhaps this is why Jesus calls his followers to pray for strength in this apocalyptic situation. Perhaps this strength is, as Paul will describe it, really none other than the strength of the Spirit who intercedes on our behalf 
and breathes forth the gifts of faith, hope, and love. But let us not be mistaken. The call is costly. For it is a call to follow after Jesus in the way of the cross, to remain vigilant, to stand up and raise our heads. Perhaps the call is to follow after Jesus into those zones of abandonment in our own world. For it is among the abandoned and betrayed where where we will be encountered by God's apocalypse. For us today, the call is to enter into solidarity with the centuries-long struggle of black people to affirm their own humanity in the midst of an oppressive and sinful social order, in order that continues to criminalize and enslave black men, women, and children. For this is where Jesus is, among those who are crushed by the powers of this world. He's with Michael Brown, he's with Eric Garner, he's with Tamir Rice, and he's with Jamar Clark from the north side of Minneapolis. And he's with their families and with the communities all over this country who are in a constant state of mourning. From Ferguson to Chicago, from Trenton, New Jersey to North Minneapolis. As the crucified one, the Son of Man is present to them, crying out with them, Why, O Lord? How much longer? For us today to stand up and raise our heads means to be attentive, to be vigilant to the way in which God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is actively upending what James Baldwin called the order of nature, those economic and social structures that seem to many of us so natural those legal and political structures that seem unquestionably good, but are, in fact, sustained by and depend on a centuries-long history of anti-black racism and white supremacy. To stand up and raise our heads today means that we must bear in mind that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world to shake heaven and earth to their very foundations. For it is the spirit of a God who comes in power not as the preserver and defender of a status quo, not as the preserver and defender of an anti-black peace and an anti-black system of law and order, but as the one who in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ identifies unreservedly with those who are enslaved, those who are lynched, and those who are killed by state-sanctioned violence. In this sense, as the black theologian James Cone has insisted, Jesus is black. This God is eternally faithful to these ones, eternally affirming their black lives. And as such, this God is faithfully at work to upend the world. So let us pray for the strength to stand up, to raise 
our heads, for heaven and earth will be shaken to their foundations.